Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. We have been in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and over the last few weeks, we have been talking about the evidence an impact of a faith that is sourced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? That's what we've been talking about, how the resurrection affects your salvation, your outlook on life, uh, your strength for today, and your hope for tomorrow, all right? That's what the resurrection does for you. Now, this, this belief in the resurrection is an integral part of the Christian faith, and in fact, the resurrection is what distinguishes Christianity from every other faith system that exists. See, we, we worship a Savior that didn't die, but rose again, right? He didn't just die, but he rose to defeat death. That's who we worship, and that, that fact distinguishes Christianity from among every other faith system that's ever existed. Our Savior lives. The idea that Christ rose from the dead and ex- has extended That same benefit to us, his believers, that we might also partake in that resurrection eternally with him, it deeply informs the identity of Christianity. It impacts it deeply. And every every corner and crevice of Christianity is filled with resurrection truth. And that's what we've been trying to get at. Uh, Many of you know that when I was very young, um, my older sister died. She passed away. Um, we were about the ages of what Boaz and Zebo are. So if you can imagine, I was about Boaz's age, and, and she was Zebo's age. And so, you know, uh, I was at that age where my sister was kind of my world, right? I looked up to her. Um, I, have, I have quite a few memories, despite the fact that I was so young. I have, I have quite a few memories of her, and, and she was my very first friend and my only friend. And so when she passed away, it, you can imagine how devastating it was and how confusing it would have been for me. Uh, it, was, it was tough. It was very hard. And in the months and the years following her passing, I had a lot of questions, right? Because in my world, she was there one day, and then the next day, she was gone. She was, she was gone from my world. And, and so I would ask uh, my mom lots of questions about where my sister was, and, and to which my mom would respond, well, Lindsay is with Jesus. And, uh, you know, that produced more questions, right? Obviously. Well, where is Jesus? He's in heaven. Where, well, where is heaven? Who gets to go there? And so by the time I was six years old, I had a very, a very strong understanding that life is fleeting, that life very naturally ends in death and that we don't ever actually know when we might die, right? And these were, these were truths that were beginning to be ingrained into my reality at three, four, five, and six years old. And all of those questions uh, resulted in a belief that Christ was the one who gives life despite the fact that everyone dies, that Christ gives life. I I had begun to make the connection that because Jesus died for our sins and rose again, 
that that gift, that gift granted my sister eternal life. And that because he, he was willing, my, my, my God was willing to do that for my sister, I began to make the connection that, that maybe he did that for me too. And I began to understand that my only hope at seeing my sister was to put my faith in Jesus Christ. That it was going to require knowing him and believing that he rose for my sins. And so at age six, I prayed to receive Jesus as my Savior. I, I, bow, I, can, I can very faintly in my, in my imaginary, I can, I can picture the room that I was in. Uh, I can pr- picture the old Sunday school teacher with a dress down to the floor. No makeup on. You know how Sunday school teachers are, especially in the 80s. This is the 80s, y'all. <laughs> Baptists in the 80s wore long dresses and didn't wear much makeup. But I can see her in my mind, and I remember praying with her. And uh, I received Christ as my Savior that day because I believed in the resurrection and that the resurrection was for me. And I believed that one day I would have the privilege of seeing my sister again. And uh, I believe that I have the privilege of knowing that I'll see my brother again. And that I'll see my grandparents again. Because they believed in the resurrection. And I hold to that truth. And you know, many of you have friends and, and family who've passed away. And you understand what I'm talking about. You understand what I'm sharing about. This probably resonates with you, this belief No, not just this belief, this promise. It's a promise. That all those that claim the name of Christ will one day not just get to see our family again. But we'll get to hold Christ in our very hands. That promise is what sustains us and gives us a future hope. See, the resurrection isn't just something that happened in the past that affects us in this moment or, 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 or affects our salvation. It's, it's this, the resurrection isn't just the thing that kind of informs my reality day to day when I wake up, but it's a truth, it's a promise that affects the way that I see what's happening tomorrow and in the future and in the unknown It's the light that guides me day to day and gives my life joy and peace and comfort despite the fact that tomorrow is a very unsure place. And that darkness is everywhere we go and that the world only seems to be getting worse. In the midst of that knowledge stands a light and it's called the resurrection. And it is my promise. Today, as we look at Paul's text from chapter 15, he's going to provide us with a description of how the resurrection is going to come to all of us who believe. He's going to help us understand the hope that we have and how it should impact our lives from day to day. And So here's our question to begin with. Does the return of Jesus Christ fill me with hope and excitement or fear and dread? Does the idea of the imminent return. The word imminent means any moment. 
any second, that, that potential return of Christ, does it fill my heart with hope and excitement? Or does it cause me anxiety and, in fact, dread? It's a very big question to ask, and we're going to address that today as we, as we get into verses 20 through 28. Let's begin by praying, okay? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for this time. And thank you for this people, and, and thank you, Lord, uh, as I look across the room, as I survey the room, there's so many people uh, that I know uh, their testimony of salvation. I remember when they put their faith in you, and it's joy to me. And, uh, and as I look around the room, there's so many faces that I don't yet know, and I don't know where they stand in terms of, of this question that we're asking today. I don't know their views or their perspectives on the resurrection. I, I don't know, uh, you know what kind of religious ideas they've grown up with. I don't know what they're grappling with, but you do. And so, uh, Lord, my prayer to you would be, um, God, would you speak to people today, wherever they're at within that spectrum? Uh, would you speak to them exactly where they're at, that you would speak to their heart, to their mind, that you would convince them at an intellectual level, but Lord, that you would also sway their heart. And in so doing, that you would illuminate their eyes and that they would be able to see truth for what it really is in a world full of darkness and confusion and a fog that seems to set and cloud everything and, and ideologicals or uh, ideologies are, are informed by um, mistruths and God, I pray that you would just clear that out, that your truth would just clear that out today and that people would be able to see maybe even for the first time. And so we ask for your help and we trust in it because, because our Savior lives, we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead, amen, and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Let's start here with verse 20, and let's talk about this idea of Christ's resurrection. It says in verse 20, but now is Christ risen from the dead. And over the last uh, three weeks, in fact, we have settled this matter conclusively, at least from my perspective. We have laid out, in short order, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if you've missed out on that, I suggest going back and listening to the audio and getting caught up on where we're at. But we have discovered, and Paul has reestablished in the hearts of the people in Corinth, the concept that Christ came 
to be our perfect Savior, to live a life completely perfect, a spotless lamb, if you will. And he gave himself, people are asking for me to share my, pa- my Wi-Fi password with them while I'm up here. Stop that. What are you doing? It's not cool. I'm in the groove. Christ came to be uh, uh, that perfect sacrifice, and he gave his life willingly. He was buried after he was crucified, treated terribly, mocked by his own creation. He died and was buried in the grave. Three days, three days later, he rose again by his own power. By his own power. John chapter 2, verse 19, uh, Jesus is is talking and teaching, and he says, and it says in verse 19, Jesus answered and said unto them, as the Pharisees stood by mocking, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And that's what Christ did. Christ gave his life, and in three days he rose up his temple from the grave by his own power, by his own might. He did it. He did it. And this leads us to our first key point. If we, under, if we want to understand hope, well, hope is knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ rose from the dead. That is where hope begins. If you do not believe that fact, then you have no hope. You are among those who still lay in bed at night and wonder what will happen to you when you die. See, hope begins with the resurrection. Listen to how Paul points to the confidence that we should have in Christ's resurrection. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, it says, Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your sins, and the, uh, the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He nailed your sins to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, what? Triumphing over them in it. Jesus Christ triumphed over death For your sake. And when his feet and his hands were nailed to the cross, that represents for us your sins being nailed to that cross. When he laid down his life, that marked the sacrifice that you deserved to pay. That he took and he bore. And when he rose from the dead, he told every principality, every spiritual being, every wicked wicked spirit that has haunted this earth for millennia. He told them, I have won. That's what he did. That's what he did. That's what the resurrection means for us. Now this verse says uh, here, it said that Christ rose from the grave and became the first fruits of them that slept. The first fruits. What does it mean by the term first fruits? That's the question that we need to ask before we can properly understand this passage. What is the first fruits? What's that term mean? This is an Old Testament concept that is, uh, that is being employed here by Paul. 
Uh, so we've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand it. Okay? So Levit- Leviticus chapter 23 is where we'll be. And it says here that uh, in, in this passage, well, first of all, Levit- if you don't know what Leviticus is, Leviticus is a book in the Old Testament that was written to the Levites, which was the priestly order of the nation of Israel. This was the tribe that was devoted to leading the nation of Israel in worship and in sacrifice in the tabernacle. So they had a very important role. And so this entire book lays out the rules and the policies as it concerns the sacrifice that the people of Israel were supposed to make. And so here in verse 9 is a brief description of what God wants them to do. And it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye become into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof. Now, you know, this is an agricultural society, and so their well-being was sourced in reaping a harvest, you know, uh, growing and, and sustaining themselves with the wheat of the field and, and, and the, 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 the land producing uh, fruit, right? Fruit. You know, we think of fruit, we think of like apples and oranges. We categorize things. But the fruit of the field is anything that's, that's yielded in growth, right? Agriculture, that, that's, that's a fruit, Ye shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. So what is God saying here? He's saying that the first part of every harvest belongs to him. The first tenth of every harvest doesn't go into the storehouse, which is the way we would think, right? God, I mean, certainly that first part of the harvest that would come in, we we know that's the part that would sustain my family. Like That's the part that we would live upon. That that ensures that we could get through, you know, a difficult season. I mean, there's there's no surety that the rest of the harvest is going to glean what the first parts did. And so... God, certainly you would let us put that in the storehouse. And he says, no, 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 no. The very first parts of that harvest, the very first things that you, the first fruit that you put in your hand, that belongs to me. That belongs to me. The idea of the first fruits is that when we prioritize God, then he honors our faithfulness. When we put him first, he considers us For blessing. You know, there are many selfish Christians today that are unwilling to put Christ first. And in so doing, they ask themselves, why is is my faith not working for me? Why is my faith not working? Well, Well, because you haven't yet dedicated yourself to prioritizing God. You haven't made him your all in all. Now, this this exact concept extends to the way we talk about giving financially, right? Right? We talk about this in terms of the tithe, and, and in the New Testament, the, the first fruits idea, the, the tithe idea, it's, it, it was never diminished. It was never done away with, and so we as believers know that the first of what we gain also still belongs to God. I mean, I'm not growing wheat in my backyard. That's not how I sustain my family. Uh, it used to be that I was a designer, and then after that, I, I was a teacher, and now I'm a pastor, and, and I've made a habit of taking the first of what I gain and giving it, I, I give it to God. So Eva and I, my wife, we give off the top of our gross income. And uh, it's immediately taken out because that's, first of all, that's really convenient that we can do that digitally. It's convenient. 
But also, I don't even want to look at it, to be honest with you. I don't, I don't want to look at it. I don't, I don't, I don't have any need to, to analyze or assess or overthink or complicate my giving. I already know it belongs to him. And so every month, we've made a habit of that money going to Midtown Baptist Temple at the beginning of every month. I don't want to think twice about it. It doesn't belong to me. In fact, none of my money belongs to me. None of it. We give to God because he deserves it. And that's just the facts of the matter, isn't it? We give to him because he deserves our priority. Now, after following Christ, you know, for 20 years now and being married for 18, there have been moments in my life with Eva where things were tight. Things were tight. I mean, there were, I can remember seasons in our first year or so of marriage um, where we, in fact, had to go to food pantries to get groceries because things were that tight. And, uh, you know, we, had, we, were looking, we were looking for <laughs> any handout that we could get in terms of, of, of just keeping groceries in the, in the fridge. But here's the thing, the thing that we never did. We never stopped giving to God. We've always prioritized him in every season, every difficult time. We have decided just to dedicate the first fruits of what we have to God. And guess what? He's always looked out for us. There has never been a time of true want. Sure, it's been hard from time to time. But, but we, have, we have never not had what we needed and so I want to challenge you in the way that you think about what belongs to you. Um, Nick has done a very good job of, of walking us through the financial series on the PS Plus. And if you want to learn more about what it looks like to honor God with your money, uh, you can go there to, to learn about that, that kind of thing. But why does God deserve that kind of adoration? Why, why does he deserve that kind of honor? Well, it's because... He gave his first fruits to us. He gave his very best. In fact, he gave the, the best thing that he had for us, to bless us and to love us and to care for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, Christ sacrificed on our behalf, and so anything, anything that he asks of me, I can give. He deserves it. Now, now God chose Jesus to be the first fruits, the first fruits of the resurrection. That's what this passage is teaching us. He's the first fruits of the resurrection. The first person to ever taste death and then rise from the dead. The first truly ever resurrected person ever to exist. Let's, let's look at this for a second. I've got a, I'm gonna, I have a series of illustrations today. Okay? So here's an illustration. All right? So you can see where we're at today. That's 2,000 years have passed since the moment of Christ's death and his resurrection. Now in that 2,000 year time frame, many people's bodies have been buried in the grave. 
Many people have passed away. Many people have gone away from us. And it says, those that have slept, that's the passage refers to, to those that have slept. Those that have slept are those that have already passed away. And I love this terminology. I love it. I love the way that God puts it that way, that they're just sleeping. It tells us that it's only just temporary. Because from God's perspective, they are only just sleeping. And one day, those bodies will be awakened and they'll come out of the tomb and they'll be reunited with their soul and their spirit in heaven. All those that have put their faith in Christ, one day they will experience a resurrected body. Now, it's important to note that this body is sleeping, okay? Not, not the soul and not the spirit. The soul and the spirit aren't sleeping because to be absent from the body is to be right, which tells us that when God looks at us, he sees us in terms of the soul. He sees us in terms of our soulishness. And so the true version of us is our soul. That is, our, our personage is, is wrapped up in three parts, a body, soul, and spirit, but the truest you is your soul. And what he tells us is that when we die, to be absent from our body, when it goes into the grave, is to be present with the Lord. And so our soul and spirit will be with him when we pass away. That's important to know. When a person dies, their body is laid to rest, but their soul and spirit reside in heaven or, or in hell, God forbid. All of that is contingent on whether or not someone puts their faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says, Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. In other words, to be present in our body, for our soul and spirit to occupy this flesh, means that we aren't present with God. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So the body is just an earthly tabernacle, right? That will at one point take its rest. And then one day it will raise again. Now it's true that other people have been risen from the dead in Scripture. You guys know the story of Lazarus? You guys remember that story, that guy? Jesus, you know, after several days, I mean, the dude's stinking in the tomb. I don't know if you know this or not. Good, this was Good Ground's first week of, of fellowship. And they met in the first service right above us, right here. And uh, they had class. Now, you know how it goes. Never, nothing ever goes the way you imagine it. So, you know, Uriah's in there getting the class ready, getting this chair set up, getting things in order. I smell something. Something's funky in here. Over the weekend, something died in the vent. Yeah. And so the hallway was just saturated, if you will, with the smell of rotten flesh. So, hey, you know, it's all good, right? It's just a reminder that we too are dead. But so here you got Lazarus as an example. Lazarus was in the tomb for several days, and then Christ goes and raises him from the dead. Now, here's the deal. Everyone that was ever risen from the dead in Scripture, guess what? One day, they died again. <laughs> they went back to the grave. Lazarus went back to the grave. None of them actually defeated death. 
Now, what this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us is that Christ is the prototype for all those bodies that sleep in their grave even now. All those who have died and will one day be resurrected and made new. He is, he is the prototype of our future hope. That's an awesome thing. Now, now, as we continue on, we look a little more closely at this relationship between death and life. Let's look at that. Verse 21 says, for since by man came death. You know, people, people always ask, you know, if God is, is all loving and all powerful, why does he allow suffering into the world? And some of you may be even asking that even right now. As you consider God and you can look around at your world and you see how corrupt it is. And you see, you see all these terrible things happening in our world. You see death and disease and, and disaster. And you say, well, well if God is all-powerful and all-loving, how could he possibly let this happen to humanity? Well, it wasn't his plan. Let's put it that way. It wasn't his plan. In fact, what we have, that was our plan. Our plan that subverted his plan. We invited sin and rebellion into the world, and he simply conceded. By man came death. Romans 5.12, we've mentioned this passage already before. It bears repeating. Uh, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death, and, and death by sin, okay, the result of that, because of the invitation of sin into the world, death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. There's a problem in the world. There's a problem in the world. It's not an issue of bad politics or, uh, you know, it's not an issue of capitalism or, or uh, you know, the dirty commies. Uh, it's not an issue of prejudice. The, pro- the problem isn't prejudice. It's not racism. It's not bigotry. The problem with our world is that sin has corrupted everything. And when you fixate on all of the stuff, all of the symptoms of sin, you're focused on the wrong thing. The real problem is sin. The real problem is that we live in a corrupted world that we created. (laughs) What we see is is the byproduct of our design. And this is why we need Christ. We need forgiveness. It's the only thing that can fix the problem. And so the passage continues, and it says, by man, so if, if we understand that by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. So who was this man? This man was Christ. Christ rose from the dead. Now, now notice that Paul uses the, the word man here. Right? He refers to Christ as a man. And I think this is important. We talked about last week how some of the very first sectarian heresies in Christianity did not actually deny the deity of Christ, but they denied his personage, his humanity. Some of the, the earliest false teachings, we talked about false teachings in last service, and, and those apostates who taught false things in the first century church I mean, we certainly have those today too. But it's interesting to note that the very first heretics weren't denying Christ's deity. They were denying his personage, which is just as egregious. 
which is just as defrauding. See, it's critical that Christ be understood in biblical terms, not philosophical terms. Just because you can't get your head around it doesn't mean it isn't true. Jesus was all God and he was all man. Not 50% God, not 50% man. He was all God and all man. God became a man. Now he was born of a virgin. Why is that so important? Why do Christians make such a big deal about that? He was born of a virgin so as not to inherit the sin nature of his father. You understand? That was critical. He had to be born of a virgin so not to inherit the sinful seed and the nature of a corrupt father born in Adam. And he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? So as not to have the nature, or so he, he, was, he was conceived of the Spirit so as to have the nature of the divine. It had to be that way. Hebrews 4.15 reminds us that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was a man just like you and I. I mean, you can imagine, you know, you know little Jesus running around 10, 11, 12, you know, being all perfect. But he wasn't any different than you and I. I think about my 11-year-old son, and I think about the sin that he's tempted with, you know, to be disrespectful to his parents, to be mean to his siblings, to, to stay up at, late at night in, in his bedroom and, and, and read books when he knows he's supposed to be sleeping, you know. And he's always, you know, he's always up to something because he's, he's made like you and me, right? He's flesh. But Jesus lived a perfect life, right? Jesus lived, I mean, he's older than most, he, when he died, he was older than most of the people in the, this room and, and you've already sinned this morning. <laughs> Jesus was perfect. He was all man and all God and he was tempted and tried and and his flesh wanted to do fleshly things, and yet, and yet, he knew there was something bigger. And so he chose not to sin. He was perfect. See, he had to be all God and all man in order to defeat death and make a way for us. It required a divine sacrifice to pave the way to forgiveness. But it required a human sacrifice to be the first fruits of life over death. Do you understand? So the passage continues on and, and asks us a very important question. It's, it's kind of a subtext to what it says in verse 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. See, there are two types of people in this world. Two types. Only two types. You thought, oh, you look around, you look at the diversity in this room. Now listen to me. From God's perspective, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither black or white, man or woman. From God's perspective, there are only two types of people. There are those that are still yet in their sin. There are those that still yet abide in Adam. And there are those that through the resurrection and faith in Christ are now his. 
And they become partakers of the divine, and they are forgiven, and they stand in a forgiven state. Those in Adam are yet in a sinful state. Those in Christ are in a forgiven state. There are two types of people, and that's how God sees you even this morning. As he looks down upon this room, and he observes all the people here, he can see you at the soul level. And he reads your heart, and he reads your mind, and he knows you. He knows every hair on your head, and he knows every thought you've ever thought. And he knows the state of your heart this morning. And he knows whether or not you are still yet in your sin or can be found in Christ. Which nature do you identify with? Where do you abide, with Adam or with Christ? And if you've not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have not called out to Christ and repented of your sin the same way I did when I was six, the same way that Nick's brother did in his early 30s, just this last week. You have to call on Christ. And when you do, he will deliver you from your Adamic state. And if you've given your life to the Lord, then you now, as the Apostle Peter says, are a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Ah, our future hope. If you've believed on Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are now a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed in the resurrection of our bodies. 1 John 5.12 says, He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. It's pretty straightforward, and it leads us to the next key point. Hope. What is hope? What is hope? That's what we need to know in this world. What is hope? Hope is knowing Christ has invited us to be with him. His resurrection was an invitation to you. He extended his grace to you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's invited you to be with him for eternity, to be forgiven and to be with him for eternity. We sang a song this morning and one of the verses was this, or Sinner find that he would not take him. No, not one. No, not one. What's that saying to us? Has there ever, ever been a sinner when they, when they came to Christ and they put their faith in him and they said, deliver me from my sin, has there ever been a person that he's not just received willingly? Of course not. He loves you. And he gave his life that he might have you as his child. And so, where do I abide? Am I still in Adam or am I in Christ? That's the most important question that you could ever ask yourself. As we move on, Paul gives us an order to the resurrection. He he creates an order out of it. He, He wants us to understand how things are to unfold, okay? And so in verse 23, it says, but every man in his own order. Okay, we know that Christ was the first fruits. His resurrection, that was the first thing. But afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. And so let's bring up the graph, the image. I've got more images here, okay? So we've got Christ's resurrection, and you can see us again today, some 2,000 years later, 
what we're doing is we're waiting for that glory to be revealed. Everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ is anticipating what we refer to as the rapture. Now, you won't find the word rapture in the Bible. Sometimes people get hung up on that. The Bible refers to this in terms of harvest. We're talking about first fruits, right? And so when, we, when Scripture talks about Jesus returning in the clouds, that he might deliver those bodies from the earth and raise those those who are asleep in the grave and all those who remain living on the earth, there's a time coming where he's going to draw us up. The Bible refers to that as a harvest. And one day we will be partakers of that harvest if we've put our faith in Christ. And we're waiting for that day. I mean, that's the whole hope of chapter 15. That's what we're getting at. We need to believe in this moment, in this moment where he will take our loved ones and he'll bring them up out of the grave and those that are alive when the rapture takes place, we will meet them in the sky with Christ. It's an amazing and a critical promise to what we believe and how we understand the Bible. There is coming a day when Christ will return and this promise of the resurrection will be fulfilled. This will be the gathering or the harvest Christ was the first fruits of. And his church, his church, will be restored to him. We will be his bounty. We will be his harvest. And so, read with me in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul clarifies this concept, and he, he says to the, the church of Thessalonica, he says, but I would not have you to be ignorant Okay, he wants to make sure that they're not foolish as it regards this issue of the rapture. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Sound familiar? Okay. That ye sorrow not. I mean, that's what the church in Corinth was doing too. They were sorrowing because they weren't sure. They, they were unsure of the resurrection. Even as others which have no hope. Don't be as those who have no hope. Why? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which, which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive, that would be us, you, you and me right now, the, uh, those of us who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ, those who are saved and yet asleep, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now listen to what it says in verse 18. Wherefore, Comfort one another with these words. It's our hope, it's our comfort to know that Christ is coming to retrieve us. We belong to him. And for those of us who've forgotten this truth, we make our lives miserable. Because we've traded our hope for the cares of the world. 
We, we, our, our minds get preoccupied. We get distracted. We start thinking about and fixating all of the garbage that's happening, happening all around us, and we lose sight of our future hope. And it robs us of all confidence, and it robs us of all comfort. We wonder why we're not comforted in our hearts, and we don't have peace. It's because we've lost sight of the resurrection and the rapture. So key point, if we want to have hope, hope, hope is knowing Christ is returning for us. Hope is knowing that Christ is returning for us. And believing that makes life so exciting. (laughs) When is Christ returning? Soon. When when is it? I mean, there have been people for a really long time trying to figure out, doing the math, doing the biblical math, you know, looking for the Bible codes, right? Geeking out. There's been plenty of heretics that have, have claimed that they know when Christ is returning. Listen to me. When is Christ returning? Soon. And it's that perspective that keeps all this right. Christian, listen, listen to me. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're not living as though Christ could return right this moment, you ain't living right. It should inform, that truth should inform our behavior, the way that we act, the way that we see the world, the way that we engage with people, the words that we speak. It should affect everything we do. Christ is watching and he's coming back. How will he find you when he comes? How will you have finished the race? What will he find in your life? Oh, you, you say to yourself, man, this, I, I love MBT. I love the people. I love my Bible study. I love discipleship. It was so good for me. You know, some of this is a little radical, you know, all of this idea, this talk about church planting and going to the world and reaching the world. I'm afraid that you might be asking too much of me. I mean, because there's still some things in the world that I still like a lot. Oh, brother. Oh, sister. He was your first fruits. But he's second place to you? I mean, how, how is he going to find you when he comes? Verse 24. Then next, in the order of all things, his rule and reign. Then cometh the end. There's, there's coming a point in time where everything will end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. And so it's important to pause here and note, we don't have time to get into all of the theology here. I highly recommend going and taking LFBI courses. Oh, that's too radical, Brandon. Okay, yeah, got, yeah. Whatever, I'm not going to convince you. Look, the word of God, it deserves to be learned. And I think you should take the Daniel and Revelation class. You want to learn about all this stuff? You want to learn about eschatology and the end times? You should take Daniel and Revelation. Get ready for that. But here's the deal. There is a time that we refer to as the millennial reign. And so after, after the, and go ahead and bring the, the screen up here. After the rapture of Christ, okay, 
There will be a seven-year tribulation on the earth. We refer to this as Jacob's trouble. Scripture refers to this as Jacob's trouble. It'll be a time in which God restores the nation of Israel to himself, and he'll use trials and tribulations and wrath upon the earth to do that. Okay, we're not going to get into all that. Okay, but that's what the tribulation is going to be about. We won't be here for that because Christ always delivers his own. God always delivers his own from the wrath to come. But then the second advent, that's what they call this second coming, where he is going to come to earth and establish a kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, and we refer to that as the millennial reign. But even that, too, will come to a close. I mean, I'm just going to gloss over a thousand years, if you don't mind. But even that will come to a close, and there will come a moment where everything here will burn with a fervent heat. And he will deliver the kingdom, all that belongs to him on this earth at the end of the millennial reign. He'll bring it to God. He'll deliver it to God the Father in heaven. This is the time in which he will fulfill his promise to Israel and establish himself as king, as ruler, and then fulfill his promise to God to deliver his followers to forever be with him in heaven. And we will ascend again with him, with all the saints. And this is when God will dole out his final judgment upon Satan and on death. Verse 24 continues and it says, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign. He must reign. I mean, what good is it to be God and to never actually rule and reign over your people? He must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Here's the next key point. Hope is knowing that Christ is in control. <laughs> he's in control. I mean, in, in chapter 15, he's just laid out the order for you of exactly the way it's going to go down. I mean, uh, Daniel and Revelation, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I mean, throughout all of Scripture, God has laid out for us exactly his plan and his order, what he's going to execute and what he's going to do. And when we look at that and we observe all those things, what, should, what that should do for us is it should inform us that God knows exactly what he's doing. He's got a plan. He's got a plan for your life and he's got a plan for all eternity. And he's going to work that plan and he is going to have his way. He's going to have his way. And so here's the deal. Why are we hopeless why are so many of us not comforted? Why are so many of us struggling with depression and, and uncertainty in our lives? Well, a lot of that has to do with the fact that you've forgotten that God is actually in control. And he knows your hardships and he knows your trials and he knows all the things that you're tempted by. And he's given you a way of escape And he's set in order for you a work. God's not afraid of the things in your life. He's not worried or concerned about the difficulties ahead of you. He's not worried about your job the way you are. He's not worried about your relationships the way that you are. He sees it and he knows. And he's at work because he's working a plan and he is in control. 
He's got you. If he's got all of eternity situated, I think he can, I think he can handle what you got. He's the boss. That's what I make my kids tell me all the time. Who's the boss? Like when they're acting up. Who's the boss? Dad, you're the boss, Dad. That's right I am. Who's, who is the boss? God is the boss, and he's got it figured out. And that should give us a real sense of security, not fear. Not fear. It should make us secure. He's the ruler of all things. Insecurity only arises when we give rulership over to other people or things. That's where insecurity arises, when I put all of my hope in my relationships, when I put all of my hope in my job, when I put all of my hope in my education, when I put all of my hope in my future husband or wife, when I put all of my hope in whether or not I'm going to get to lead this or that in ministry. Listen, shut up, chill out, and stop giving away your heart to things that aren't Christ. He is in control. Let him be in control. Verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, for he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Revelation chapter 20 uh, says this. And the devil that deceived them, is that what the devil does? He deceives, isn't it? Isn't that what he does? And the devil that, did, that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. Who sits on the throne? Who, who did we just learn sits on the throne at the end of all things? Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And there was, no, uh, there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, before I go any further, I want you to understand that these dead are all those people who never put their faith in Christ. And the book, the book of life, is a record of who and who did not accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so this great white throne judgment is is all those who have never believed on Christ stand before him and he opens the book and he looks inside and name after name after name after name won't be found. God forbid that be any of you in this room. And the de dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. In other words, without Christ, you're still dead in your works. You're still found relying on being a good person. Listen, you're not a good person. Establish that right now. You're not a good person. Have you ever sinned? If so, do you, do you honestly believe that you deserve to stand in the, in the holiest presence of God in that state? No. See, he's judging them by their works because they still are relying on their works for salvation. 
And that's what makes them dead. See, we're, ama- we're made alive by the resurrection of Christ. And we are no longer, when we put our faith in him, we're no longer measured by our works. We're either in Christ or in Adam. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And here here is our final key point, and this is what we need to understand. Hope is knowing that Christ has and will conquer death. Okay, for every believer, everyone that's put their faith in Jesus Christ, he's conquered death for you. He took your death. He conquered it. He rose again. He beat it. Death, where is your sting? Where is your sting? We can mock death. Everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ can mock the grave. It means nothing to me. My my life, my body, it means nothing to me. I'll give it over. You know why? Because Christ is just going to raise it up again one day. I have no fear. But there's coming a future day where he will confer, uh, he'll conquer death forever. He will, cast, he will cast death and hell into the lake of fire for eternity, and there will be no more death. This is the God that we serve. Now look, the book of the Apocalypse, or Revelation, was revealed to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. And John, he witnessed all these future events as though he was actually there. When we read Revelation, these are things that John was seeing as though he was really right there uh, observing it in his flesh. Now, at the conclusion of his letter, at the end of Revelation, he records a very curious interaction between him and Christ. And it reads like this, Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He which testifieth these things saith. Now, who was the one who was testifying to, to John? It was Christ, okay? So, he which testifieth these things saith, surely... I come quickly. That was his message. Surely I come quickly, Christ says. And that's what he's telling you and I. John's response was this. This is what John says in return. Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Come. Well, how can he say that? How can he hope for the end of all things? How could he actually want all those terrible things that he saw? Because he knows at the end of all things stands the king of love and kindness and all the wickedness of the enemy and all the lies and all the hate and all the death and all the darkness and all the disease and all the disaster will be done. It'll be done. And all the joy and all the peace and all the comfort and all the happiness will be ours for eternity. 1 Peter 4, 7 says, But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. So here's my question for you. I want to invite Harrison up to lead us in worship as we close. And as we do that, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak to you real quick, and I want you to really consider this. I want you to ask this of your heart and of your mind. Listen carefully. Are you watching And waiting with anticipation for the return of Jesus Christ. Are you excited about it? Are you eager for his return? Or are you afraid?
And nothing that I said today could bring you peace. Are you afraid of his return? Is your heart full of anxiety or hope when you consider that Christ could come back any moment and you will answer for your life? As we go into worship, I want to I invite you this way. There are going to be leaders standing up here, people who know the word of God well. If you don't know that you're in Christ, if you don't know that you've been delivered from your Adamic state, from that sinful state that you were born into through sin, come forward and reconcile that before God today so that you can know that you stand in the power of his resurrection and that you can learn to be eager and excited for the return of Jesus. Come, come forward and receive. Today is the day of salvation. Today. Not tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. What does tomorrow hold? You don't know. But what you do know is that you have an opportunity today, once and for all, without any fear or, or, or worry about what someone thinks of you. This, this room is full of people who only just want God's best for you. So you don't need to be afraid of what anyone thinks. If you were to stand up and come forward, don't worry about that. We love you. Today is the day of salvation, so don't don't squander that. Lay hold on it and call out to Christ for the first time. And so there are other people in this room who are believers and you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you, you, you know that you're among the future resurrected people. But you've got so caught up in the things of this world that the idea of Jesus coming back today, well, it scares the hell out of you. You're afraid of what he might find. Or you're so in love with the world that you, your prayers are, and many, many young people pray this way, God, just don't come back yet. I'm, I haven't experienced all the things in life that I want to experience. I'd love to be married. I'd love to have children. There are things of this world that I just, I just haven't got to do, and so I'm not really looking forward to your return quite yet. Now listen to me, that is something worth laying down. Because I'll tell you, I have kids and I have a wife, and it sure is great, but listen to me, nothing compares to the idea that one day with my family, I will stand before Christ, I will see Lindsay again, I'll see my brother Austin again, I'll see my grandparents and I'll be restored to them for eternity. Nothing beats that idea. <laughs> nothing in this world. There's nothing better in this world than that. There may be some in here that know that if Christ was to return today, that your family members and your friends would be destined for hell. And that's scary. And so maybe what you do today is you turn to the person sitting next to you and you pray because Christ has a plan and he's in control. And you can ask him. You can ask him, Lord, be relentless as it concerns my family member or my friends. Be relentless. Don't quit. God, don't quit. So all of us have an assignment this morning. Okay? What's the invitation to you? And as we worship... Be making decisions for the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for 1 Corinthians 15 and all the things that we're learning.
God, be at work in our hearts and minds. Lord, if there is something that you're calling us to right now, I pray that every individual would be able to respond with faith. Help us, God. We're trusting in you. We, we love you and we're grateful for the resurrection. We pray all this in Christ's name because he is love and he is good and he is the resurrection. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.